The Graphic Possibilities Podcast is the official podcast of the Graphic Possibilities Research Workshop at Michigan State University. This is a graduate research workshop in the Department of English that engages with comics through two interrelated branches, critical inquiry and engaged pedagogy, led by Professor Julian Chambliss and graduate coordinators Justin Weigard and Nicole Huff. This season, we will be speaking with comics educators, makers, and scholars from around Michigan State University in a monthly podcast series. Given our distance this fall, we wanted to bring the conversation right to you, bridging the gap in space through the digital medium. In this episode, we will be speaking with Brandon Easton, who is a professional writer, screenwriter, and educator based out of Los Angeles. Born and raised in Baltimore, Maryland, Brandon attended Ithaca College and then earned his MFA in screenwriting at Boston University. After teaching U.S. history and economics at New York City Public Schools, Brandon relocated to Los Angeles and broke into the TV writing scene with the Warner Brothers Animation 2011 reboot of Thundercats, followed by Transformers Rescue Bots. His original graphic novel, Shadow Law, won the 2013 Glyph Award for Best Writer, and Brandon was also nominated for an Eisner Award for the African-American-inspired Watson and Holmes graphic novel. Brandon is currently on the writing team for the Star Trek Year 5 graphic novel series from IDW Publishing and a writer for the DC Comics Feature State Superman event series, which was released in January 2021. Brandon has recently been announced as a writer for a variety of upcoming DC series, including Mr. Miracle, The Source of Freedom, Superman Truth and Justice, Superman Red and Blue, and Batman Legends of the Dark Knight. Thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate you uh, stopping in to talk with us. And uh, for those of our listeners who aren't maybe familiar with your longstanding work in comics and film and television, uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work in comics? And also uh, a little bit about maybe your work in education too, because I know that you're, you were mm-hmm. a teacher as well. Yeah, so I'll start with the education stuff because that's more chronological. So I taught in uh, New York City public schools from 2000, roughly 2002 to about 2008. I spent about three years in the Bronx at uh, middle school 391. And then I spent another three years in Harlem at a Thurgood Marshall Academy. And um, those were really transformative times for me as a creator because I hadn't really been around children since I was a child really. Cause I, you know, I wasn't, I don't hang around kids, you know, and even like, children who were in my family, I didn't deal with them on an academic level. They were family. So that was a major wake-up call and a big shift in my thinking about what the world was actually like in a lot of ways. Now, and we'll probably get into a little bit more of that later. But overall, in, in the overall arc of my career in general, I had been, I'd started writing as early as high school. And I had written a short story that one of my friends had passed around to all the upperclassmen about an alien invasion. And I was stunned that people actually liked it. So I got some respect, weirdly enough, from because in my school, it was very, very, you know, hierarchical. You know, there was definitely a stratification system. And if you were a, a freshman or a sophomore who got props from juniors or seniors, it was pretty cool, particularly for academic stuff, just for like creative stuff, you know. So my formal kind of breaking into the industry happened in... 2002, that was my first comic book gig, which was with um, Dreamwave Productions on Arcanium. And then years later, I moved to LA and I broke into the Hollywood scene with work on the Thundercats reboot of 2011, which led to like this 
you know, it was like a domino effect. I'm giving you a lot of horrible years kind of encapsulated, but, you know, it was a domino effect career-wise where it stumbled into graphic novel work, then more TV work, and I got into the Disney ABC writing program in 2015, and that was kind of like another launch pad that kind of took me to a different level as a creator. And since then, I've worked on a variety of properties like uh, Marvel's Agent Carter. I did the um, Black Panther animated series, you know, the fifth season of Avengers Assemble. It was called Black Panther's Quest. I've uh, written a Vampire Hunter D adaptation, which was a you know famous um, sci-fi horror franchise from Japan. And you know, I've worked on a ton of comic book series. I did an Andre the Giant bi you know, biographical graphic novel. I've done a bunch of other stuff recently, like Judge Dredd, False Witness. I've done um, Transformers Galaxies. And a lot of big stuff has been, you know, uh, Superman. You know, I did a Superman story about mass incarceration. It's called Truth and Justice. It's still, it just can't, the third part just was released yesterday, which was uh, Friday the 12th of uh, 2021. February, so Friday, February 12th of 2021. Um, I um, also, they just announced I'm doing a Batman story in Legends of the Dark Knight anthology. And there's another Superman story I did about heroin addiction, which is the best way I always say it's like, what if Superman was in the world of the wire? So um, that's been some of the stuff I've been wor working on. And the big one was like, the last big one was the Netflix series, Transformers War for Cybertron. So I've been able to leverage uh, work across various mediums over the years. Um, with that, I know that Nicole and I were, we were, when we were talking about getting you on the show, we were both really excited to hear about and, and to kind of see your name on Vampire Hunter D. Uh, we're both kind of big manga fans, actually, and like, you know, like horror fans, too. So could you tell us a little bit about that and, and what maybe what your experiences were coming for like this longstanding series, but also your specific spin on it? Because you wrote like a, like a mini series on it, right? Or like a, like a kind of a mm -hmm. yeah okay run yeah a few years back there's an american um production company called unified pictures which is out here in um, los angeles area and they had the license to do a vampire hunter the animated series as well as a new comic book series so they subcontracted um stranger comics to do a adaptation of an unpublished short story written by hideki kikuchi the creator of vampire hunter d called message from mars so we did a massive Kickstarter, which is one of the most successful comic book Kickstarters of all time. Issue one was made and distributed. It was supposed to be a five issue series. We lost the artist. So we had to, he kind of ended up making different choices. So we had to let him go. So we got a new artist, Ryan Benjamin, who came in, who's worked with Wildstorm in DC and Marvel over the years. So we had to kind of redraw all five scripts. So that's what, what, that's what happened with that. In the meantime, I was also contracted to write a pilot based on the mysterious journey to the North Sea or North novels into a, a pilot or actually a whole season. So I, I did the pilot for that. I don't, I, to this day, I don't know what's going on because that's a whole different ball game. But that's how I got involved with that. Um, I met the producers way back when we got along and after they went through a couple other writers, I was next up to bed and that's basically how I stumbled into the world of Vampire Hunter D. That's awesome. I've been, I was being a little nosy about that earlier. <laughs> I was telling Justin how interested I was in the Vampire Hunter D series. So thank you. Um, I also am wondering, just based on your work as an educator, especially um, having been an educator of history, you also have a background in sociology. 
just how you see that work and that knowledge intersecting um, with your work in comics and in television. Hmm. Well, my sociology background, that comes from my undergraduate degree at Ithaca College. That was a major eye-opening, another major transformative moment for me because coming out of Baltimore, not understanding why it was the way it was, sociology was kind of a Rosetta Stone of reality for me. Like I was able to understand some of the systems that are not easily explained. And you know, it was also like a, you know, an interdisciplinary situation where I also took a lot of psychology courses and then economics courses and then politics courses. And it became this like mosaic of understanding how and why certain things happen, right? And that has stayed in my storytelling and my, you know, personal DNA. You know, my intellectual DNA informs everything I write, including my personal experiences. So when I approach any story, I, I think about the rules of drama and comedy, mainly drama, because I mainly write science fiction and, you know, that type of stuff. But I also think about, you know, the systems that go behind any new concept. So I, when I do world building, the first thing I usually ask myself is, how, does, how do people or how do systems in this world generate income or what do they trade with? And that kind of, every organizing principle of a society, generally speaking, since the hunter-gatherer days has been trade. And whether you're talking about Star Wars, Star Trek, whether you're talking about Game of Thrones, Dragon Ball Z, whether you're talking about the DC universe, Marvel universe, when you really strip it down, what is actually motivating a lot of the scenarios? And a lot of times it's money. You know, or lack thereof, or or the power that economics can bring. So, it, it definitely influences me, and I try to inject that kind of uh, the in, like the infrastructure elements into all my stories. I, I'm really glad to hear you say that too. Um, I was rereading through your work that you did with Jim Cornette. Um, oh yeah, yeah, and and the and the and the pro wrestling doc, or the pro wrestling comic you put together. And I really loved that you started that book off with the story of Roscoe Sputnik and his, you know, rise, but also like the, the pretty important work that he did in Memphis, but, you know, and also the fact that the work that he was doing there made money go figure, right? Um, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, those were all Jim Cornette stories with Sputnik, uh, Sputnik Monroe, I think, was it? Is, is, yeah, yeah. It was just... Well, I mean, I've been a wrestling fan my whole life. Growing up in Maryland, you and if you get into the pro wrestling stuff, that was right on the border of like several territories back in the day. So I was able to kind of absorb a bunch of different um, um, federations and their territories. And I used to go to the Baltimore Arena or the Civic Center, as they used to call it, and watch, you know, Jim Cornette and the Midnight Express back in the day. And the fact that I got to work with him, that blew my mind because I was sitting there just talking to a guy who was a living repository of pro wrestling knowledge, and then someone who I had sat out in the stands and jeered. So that was, it was a very unique experience in that regard. And um, it, yeah, and that was a lot of fun. I mean, God, it was so much fun. And one of the things that's very interesting about pro, I'm glad you brought up pro wrestling, is that that also in a way is a Rosetta Stone for American society and culture because combat sports, whether uh, predetermined or not, have been a part of humanity for quite some time. And um, pro wrestling is just another facet of that. And so much of American pop culture, particularly television expansion, is connected to pro wrestling. And very few people understand that because pro wrestling was very cheap and easy to produce and had a relatively large per capita um, audience, demographically speaking. And 
you know, and it's all there. I mean, it's extremely well documented and very few people know. And I'm very glad that Jim Cornette and I was able, you know, to put that out there. And I, and we do a little bit of that in the Andre the Giant book too. So that's very cool. I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that one up. Thank you. Uh, and just out of idle curiosity, I, I have to ask, do you have a favorite pro wrestler? There's not one, but the, one of the guys I really enjoy watching is a dude out of Japan, out of New Japan Pro Wrestling named um, Katsuka Okada. Mm-hmm. This guy's like ridiculously amazing. And yeah. the stuff he can, able, like he's, he had a big series a few years ago with Kenny Omega, who is currently right, right. AEW right now, AEW champion right now. And if you go like Google and look up Okada versus Omega, those matches are like considered to be like big, like platinum standards right now. The things that these two were able to do and not kill each other. Extraordinary work. So I would say Okada is probably number one and number two in the world. And then uh, there's a bunch of other folks, but I would say Okada. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Thanks for indulging me. <laughs> no problem. Thinking about um, just the way that our podcast works in trying to engage comic educators. Um, mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you, based off of like John Jennings and Stacey Robinson's um, call to critical making, what insights or advice you have to other comic educators um, and comic makers when it comes to critical making? Yeah, wow, that's a good one. I mean, I could talk about four hours on this topic. Um, I think that when it comes to this subject, I really have to say, and this is just purely my opinion, that it's better when you have someone who actually has a love of the medium to teach it. Because while I am completely capable of teaching opera history, I have no love for it. I don't disrespect opera. I'm just not an opera fan or aficionado, right? And I feel that it helps when people who are engaged in the creation of it, in that small Venn diagram of people who create and also are educators, I think that's vitally crucial. Because if you have someone talking about it and trying to engage people critically on it, but don't have a love for it. If, you, if, if it's purely an abstract academic or pedagogical topic, I think you can lose people very easily and very quickly. And I learned that the hard way when I was teaching in the Bronx where I taught a very underprivileged and um, academically challenged population of students. You know, And I found that when I would bring up it, like back then it would have been Naruto, right? I would bring up Naruto or uh, One Piece, or um, even dra- horrible Dragon Ball Z and Dragon Ball franchise in general, they would connect with me on a level that they didn't connect with a lot of other teachers or instructors on, right? And it wasn't that I could not only talk about it, but I knew, I actually had a deep knowledge, a bed of knowledge where they would try to challenge me and I would blow them out the water every time with all the things I'd read and all the episodes I'd watch. Like they were stunned by that. So I feel like the best advice is to actually either develop or have a love for the medium itself. Because comics is not something that everybody intrinsically understands. And it's one of those things just like learning new languages because it is a visual language that I feel a person has to do between first and third grade. You know, that, that's been my, my experience as a, as a former teacher or as a teacher, whatever. I found that I found that if you don't get students by third grade into something, it's very difficult to introduce those concepts to them, particularly when it comes to like a visual language or even a spoken language. Not to say that they cannot learn, it's just that it's a lot easier to lay down those um, those benchmarks, those bullet points early on so they can fill in the gaps themselves later. And that's the, I would say that anyone who's, you know, want, wants to introduce this stuff to students, do it between, on a primary level, 
especially, especially before fifth grade, definitely before fifth. And I would say really first to third would be a great place to introduce graphic literature and graphic storytelling to students, because that way you can determine what those multiple intelligences are. You can determine if a student is more of a, have more of an illustrative mind or someone who's more literal with actual words and figuring out the neuro-linguistics of it all. Like what do these folks actually connect with? That's the advice I would give. And this is more like for real teachers, like folks who are actually in there in the trenches. You know, I would say one, have a love or develop a love for the medium. And two, introduce it early as possible to see where your students actually, this is an assessment tool too, because if you give them Garfield and you know Garfield is considered you know pretty standard and simplistic, but if you can determine where your students may end up by how they interpret what they're seeing just in like a six or four panel Garfield sketch or even Calvin and Hobbes or even something extremely simple like Ziggy, you know, far side is too complicated, but like something that is extremely basic, I feel that is a good way as of assessing a student's ability to absorb this stuff, but also figuring out what they actually are into. So that's my advice. Like, you know, get it, get it to students early as possible. And if you're teaching higher grades, try to pick the material that's right for that grade. So you can't show, for example, you know, a contract with God by Will Eisner to, you know, middle schoolers. They're not going to get it. But, you know, if you find a, a really hot manga, like Demon Slayer, for example, right now, which is burning up the charts globally, or even, you know, Naruto, or like all the Gundam material, and even like even like the anime-inspired stuff like Transformers here in the States, you know, if you can find that stuff, uh, meet the students where they are, and then you can bring them up. And, and, I, and I would say that, you know, identifying the right piece of material is absolutely critical, because there's no way on earth I would show The Dark Knight Returns Batman, The Dark Knight Returns, or Watchmen, you know, to middle schoolers, but maybe a college crowd is going to definitely take that in a lot better than even a, a secondary crowd would. So I think subject matter is deeply important for that too, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it super does. And, and going along with that, you talked a lot about um, being really intentional with content, using, mm -hmm. even being able to use the content as a form of assessment itself, which is uh, uh, a really yeah. phenomenal, you know, like litmus test for those classes. Do you have any pedagogical strategies or like activities that you found uh, that you got to teach with comics that worked really well, or even ones that didn't, that we might be able to like learn from? Because I often find that those lesson plans that we think will go over super well, and then don't kind of teach us a lot, so. Oh, uh, let's see. We had a graphic novel version of The War of the Worlds that um, this was, God, this would have been back in 2005, I want to say, or 2004, quite some time ago. And I wanted to have, I had, to, I had the students over the summer go pick up the book, The War of the Worlds, with H.G. Wells. And then when the school year started, I had the actual graphic novel. So what we did was compare and contrast the visual language that like, how, how did they imagine what these things look like versus what someone else did? And so what I, what I wanted to kind of hammer in, this was doing like a media literacy phase of what I was teaching at the time. I wanted to kind of layer in the fact that when you read a book, you're the director, you're not the writer, but you're the director. Like you're creating the images yourself. You're putting the camera in different places yourself. Whereas when you, have even a graphic novel or movie or TV show or whatever. 
someone else is placing the camera or the, as John Berger would say, the ways of seeing, you know, and once that's taken away from you, the question is, what am I being taught or told or manipulated into by, through someone else's lens versus reading a piece of literature, which in and of itself is an act of a manipulation because all art is emotional manipulation in some people's mind, right? But the trick is, I found that prose literature allows you a degree of personal control, whereas the visual arts tend to basically guide you. It's almost like a linear, like being put on a rail and like taken through a voyage as opposed to absorbing it for yourself. You know, so I think that was something that I did that I felt that it didn't, I mean, and again, I'm, I'm encapsulating a lot of horrible times in a short sentence or a paragraph or two, but that didn't go over as well because they didn't connect with the Victorian era because these were kids in the central Bronx who quite frankly, their families did not, as, as a, academics call a text rich environment, they didn't have a text rich environment in home. Like when I was growing up, there were magazines, newspapers, ebony, jet, encyclopedias, dictionaries, thesaurus size, thesaurus, I don't know what the plural thesaurus are, you know, but uh, we had that where, and I hate, I mean, this is just being honest, a lot of them, the students I had when I was in the Bronx, the only literature they had in their house were video game strategy guides and cheat code books, you know, and it was like, you know, how do you engage with people who are not practiced with having um, casual reading? And casual literature in their homes. So that, that's where I realized that I really had to meet my students where they were. And again, not in a condescending way, but in a literal application of how do I get them to the next level? How do I, how do I feel comfortable promoting them to the next grade? You know, and that, I, I, I'm not a fan of social promotion at all. So in that scenario, I wanted to make sure they actually learned something before they went to the next level. Thank you. Uh, Nicole, do you have another question for, for our guest? Um, not right this, actually, yeah, let's, uh, let me ask about this. Um, so the Noir is the new Black comics anthology. Um, we know that's due to be released soon. Uh, just for our listeners who are not as familiar with it, could you just tell us a little bit about that project and your mm. specific contribution to it? Yeah, uh, there's a guy named Fabrice Sablowski. Sablowski, I hope I'm a, sorry, Fabrice, he's a French guy. Um, I was messing up his last name. Um, he was one of the, I think he is the creator of the Spider-Man noir character for Marvel. And he's done a bunch of other stuff. He worked with Humanoids Press and all this other stuff. So he decided to get together 40, Af well, Black, not African-American, uh, 40 Black creators, artists and writers, to do creator-owned stories in, an, in, in, a, in a series of short noir, you know, inspired, you know, uh, tales, right? And it's a brilliant idea. It's literally unprecedented as far as I know. But with that being said, my story is called Gemini Visions. And it's about a disgraced former Baltimore Police Department detective who lost her sister, her twin sister many years ago. And my story begins with them finding um, a dead body of a young black woman in the uh, Druid Hill Park Reservoir, which is based on a true story. It's called the Lady, Baltimore's Lady in the Lake Case where a former waitress, um, um, bar, a bartender, uh, a lady who, a, a bartender waitress, a, a waitress who worked in a bar, sorry. Her body was found in a, um, in a, in a Druid Hill Park Reservoir back in like the 1970 or 1969. And um, it's, it, it's a crazy case because it's 
solvable, but not quite solvable. It's very much an unsolved mystery, like you would see on the old show with Robert Stack. It's like to this day, I mean, I, I'm a big true crime fanatic. So I went down that rabbit hole and I, and I wanted to put that story back into the consciousness. So I took that and mixed it in with a um, noir tale in, you know, in Baltimore's underworld, you know, particularly with the sex, the sex uh, work underworld of Baltimore City. So that's what my story is about. Um, I'm, I'm also a, a major true crime fan. Actually, just before this, um, my wife and I were watching the brand new Cecil, Ho Cecil Hotel documentary. Oh, my God. <laughs> we'll get you started on that one. I, right. I live in L.A., you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so we, you know, we're I, I've heard that story, you know, a ton of times. I've watched the video, uh, that tragic, insane video before. At least um, I am. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I I'm really struck by this, uh, by your intentionally bringing these kinds of um, these elements of true crime into the comics form, right? And also like these these very true narratives too. I think I'm more just curious about your experiences writing in nonfiction versus in. Oh, history. I see. Yeah. Okay. Nonfiction is a lot harder, much harder, much harder by a long shot. And I'm gonna tell you why. Nonfiction is difficult because if you're talking about darker subjects or salacious subjects, you still have to inject a bit of humanity into it or else it becomes yellow journalism, you know? When I, for example, when I was doing the Andre the Giant book, this is a man who literally drank himself to death, right? And he had a lot of debauchery, but I was also working with Andre the Giant's only daughter on that book. So I had to tell a human story without erasing his, you know, not good decisions. And at the same time, not be salacious while not talking about his not good decisions. So you have to kind of ride this razor's edge of truth, but not exploitation. And that's the trick with nonfiction because nonfiction, it is way too easy to like fall into the salacious side. I mean, it's, it, it's just like, a, it's, a, it's a well. It's, you just slip right into it and it's, it's coated with grease and you just keep sliding right on down, right? Um, and, 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 and with that being said, I would also suggest folks check out a lot of the true crime graphic novels out there because there's a slew of them. I mean, there's tons of, there's one about the Green River Killer. There's one about the Torso Murders in Cleveland back when Elliot, called Torso by Brian Michael Bendis. I mean, he kind of fictionalized it a bit, but there, but the core of it is what actually happened in Cleveland and the Kingsborough Run murders, right? And there's, and there's millions of them. I mean, you can just look it up, but I feel that there is a unique challenge to nonfiction graphic novels that doesn't exist because if I wanted to blow up the world 55 times in a Superman story and have everything be okay at the end, I can do that. You cannot do that in a nonfiction story. If I'm talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis, no missiles were launched, you know? So we have to keep it to that. And just staying within the bounds of reality without going too far with sensationalism, I think that's the challenge with nonfiction. But that said, nonfiction graphic novels rock. You know, and there's so much fun, you know, and there's so many of them and there's so much fun to write and read, you know. Uh, Julian, did you have any questions? It seemed like you were almost going to ask one and then I probably cut you off because I had to ask about true crime. No, I mean, I think true crime is actually a really interesting subject matter. Of course, as someone who studies superheroes, I'm really interested in Brandon's, um, what I would say, a significant journey in that genre across multiple mediums and 
uh, but recent announcements about your writing for DC. Mm -hmm. I'm really curious about your reflections on uh, some of the things that you talked about, written about in terms of diversity related to to comics. Uh, and in particular, you know, I'm a huge fan of Jack Kirby, as many comics fans are. Uh, you're getting to play in the New Gods world with with Mr. Miracle, which, you know, is it's a favorite character of mine. The Shiloh Norman is in, a, in an incredible sort of addition to that, and uh, you're getting the chance to basically introduce that character to a new generation of readers uh, at mm -hmm. a very pivotal moment in comics, especially for DC perspective. So there's a lot, a lot riding. <laughs> No pressure, but there's a lot riding on that. <laughs> and so I'm really curious, you know, how you feel uh, about these opportunities related to uh, this particular writing assignment. But, mm -hmm. you know, how, how in the decade that I've sort of followed your work, um, some of these concerns that you have about representation, about inclusion, mm -hmm. um, where the world is from your perspective as a person in, on the inside. Wow, that's a lot. Uh, I'm trying to figure out how I got to compartmentalize, I got to compartmentalize some of this. Okay, so first, yeah, I mean, to work for DC, to do any work for DC Comics or Marvel for that matter, those are the big two. Like, you know, no one takes you seriously. And this is one of those unspoken things that everybody knows, but no one is, you know, impolite enough to say, but I'll be that person. Nobody takes you seriously until you work at Marvel or DC. It, it sucks. It's like nobody takes you seriously until you're in the NBA. Nobody takes you seriously into the major league baseball. No one takes you seriously into the NHL, you know, or you win it, or for example, like Serena and Venus, no one takes you seriously until you get to the US Open and win it, right? So DC and Marvel are the pinnacles of, you know, American superhero storytelling. I never thought I would actually work for D, I thought it would be Marvel before DC. Actually, it was Marvel before DC, but um, to be able to tell the stories I've been able to tell, given some of the problems in the American comic book industry regarding diversity, and not even just diversity, specifically Black people, the, 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 the unwillingness to hire Black writers. They'll hire Black illustrators all day long. It's almost like the NFL used to be, where it's like they'll have Black running backs and tackles, but they didn't have a Black quarterback because that's the smart position. Um, same thing happened in comics. Writing is considered to be an intellectual craft, for better or for worse specifically black men the first 10 I, I actually did this in a class the first 10 words that come to people's mind when they think of black men is not into intellectual is not in that list so people don't look at you as someone who is capable of stringing words together of world building of telling a story that's not just about race you know as if that was a bad thing but that's what you believe that's 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 the belief that's that you always have some kind of quote-unquote mystical agenda leftist, communist, Marxist agenda to slide into your work, when the reality is you're just talking about your experience. Like for the Mr. Miracle series, which is coming out May 4th of 2021, it's a six issue mini series called The Source of Freedom. And it's all about Shiloh's journey as not only a Mr. Miracle, but as an African-American Mr. Miracle. What does that mean? You know, I talk about that, you know, I bring it up. But then I did two Superman stories, one about mass incarceration, the second one is about, you know, heroin addiction. One is specifically about race, but one is not. Then the Batman story I did recently has nothing to do with anything other than him. It's an Indiana Jones adventure with Batman, in it, basically. He's looking for a Catholic artifact. 
and a bunch of other people are also looking for that artifact. And it's Batman being Batman doing his detective stuff in Venice, Italy. Just like at the beginning, I mean, just like in the uh, first act of uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Like, I was heavily influenced by that. Like, my influences are way beyond just race, class, and gender. Like, I was born and raised Catholic. You have no idea how much, like, Knights Templar stuff is floating around in my head and Vatican secrets are floating around in my head, right? So I think that while I do approach it from my perspective as an African, a large, I'm six foot two, a large African-American man, I also have a whole realm of life experiences that have absolutely nothing to do with the color of my skin that I inject into my work. It's just that when you get the opportunity to tell these stories, the challenge is, do you talk about race or do you just kind of let it be there and don't hammer it in? And I find that I've done a little bit of everything. Like some, I've had stories specifically about race, but like the Andre the Giant graphic novel, other than one scene about racism, because it's based on an actual event, the majority of the book is about a human being trying to figure out if you, what is, like, trying to define what is a light part of your soul, what is the gray part of your soul, and what is the dark part of your soul. That's what that's really about. Like, where do we actually stand in ourselves? And that has nothing to do with race. That's a human thing, right? So while I do believe that it's important for writers of color, particularly Af people from the African diaspora, to talk about those type of issues, post-colonialism, colorism, you know, economic racism, environmental racism, the whole nine yards, right? you know, gender discrimination within, within our own communities and stuff. It's also important just to tell a story that anybody can understand, because I think we get caught up in a trap of just being, quote unquote, a black writer. And I think, no, you're, you're a, like, I don't look at Denzel, he's a black actor. No, Denzel Washington is an actor, you know, uh, Viola Davis is an actor, you know, or actress, you know, because no one calls doctor, women doctors, doctresses. So, you know, she's, she's not, I feel as she is a fantastic actor, one of the finest on the planet, right? So I don't think of them as just being black, although they do a lot of black material, you know, but they could flip it like, like, like Viola did in Doubt when it was just about protecting her son and allowing her son possibly to be molested because he had a chance at a better life. I mean, that's insane. Like that moment in Doubt, the movie Doubt and based on the play, if anybody hasn't seen it. Um, that scene in that movie is what made me a Viola Davis fan. And that kind of like informs what I'm talking about in the comic book game. Now on the flip side of that, you know, the industry still has a long way to go in identifying and promoting uh, writers of color, especially black writers, women or men, you know? And um, it's changing. People who have gotten, I, I wouldn't have gotten this opportunity a year ago at DC, but things change behind the scenes, you know, and it had to because AT&T got involved, you know, that's a whole other story. But um, I would just say that I'm glad to have the opportunity and there's still a lot of work to be done, a whole lot of work to be done. And that's how I'll leave it with that one, you know. Well, you know, one of the things that um, is interesting about your career and, and, and you allude to this very directly, like you're not really serious until you get hired by Marvel, right? Like. I sometimes get asked, or DC. Like, what do you, mm -hmm. yeah, Marvel DC, right? Like, but you, I get asked, like, you know, how do Marvel hire How do they hire Marvel writers? Well, they don't hire Marvel writers until like they publish a bunch of stuff someplace else. And 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 the fact of the matter is, is that those people often have done a number of things, like you've done, like they've done work on licensed properties, they've done work in animation, they've done work in games, right? Like they mm -hmm. they've done a lot of things and. 
And your, your CV is impressive in part because like you've worked on pretty much every major, what I would think of as big <laughs> name pop culture franchise in some le- on some platform in the last decade. Like I, I not Star Wars yet. Not Star Wars. That's right. You haven't done Star Wars. I'm my yes. bad. I, 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 I was wrong. Okay. Yet. He's, he's saying put it out there, universe. Yet. Um, what's the value, if there is any value, in that kind of license work? Because, of course, from a cultural mm-hmm. standpoint, from a pop culture standpoint, that is like water to students. They like they, they everyone knows that stuff. And I want to say that I was a huge fan of your the Netflix War Cybertron. I thought that was really, really well done. Thank you. Um, but, but of course, you know, those those franchises are multi-billion dollar things that mm-hmm. generation after generation of the consumer is consuming. What's the value of that of doing that work when you're a creative? And is there any, could there be possibly any consequences when you're a creator of color? Uh, working in that uh, with those properties yeah that's a fantastic question oh man and god that's another one that can go four hours um i mean they have panels on licensed work as you know at comic cons all you know and sci-fi cons okay so okay here's all right it's it's kind of a double-edged sword but first i mean one side is sharper than the other obviously um the trick is this you want to get published wherever you can if you can get on a licensed property whether you're doing a movie tie-in novel or like like one of those, like Walking Dead now suddenly has a bunch of like side novels, you know, that kind of expand the world a little bit. And then, you know, everything does the expand, or the expanse is based on novels, but you know, like The Witcher, you know, all these things like you have all this like, like tie-in media, although The Witcher was a no- novel series first, but whatever is like Aliens, the Aliens franchise, that has significant amount of ancillary media that has been created by a lot of great writers. You want to get your name in there because it exposes your name to people who normally would never know who you are. Now, the flip side of it, and this is where it gets dangerous, is that if you only do that, then eventually you'll stop being taken seriously because you've only done somebody else's work. The trick is to create a stream of original material and licensed material doesn't matter which comes first. Generally, you don't get the license material unless you've done something. But I've known people who've gotten their first chance working on like an adaptation, you know, like a, like a Halo novel or a Halo uh, comic series or World of Warcraft or Starcraft, something along those lines, right? And that stuff is really important. Um, I don't know if there's any penalty if you're a person of color or a woman, you know, working on those materials. I think the penalty is just simply working on those materials exclusively, regardless of what you look like. Because if you are seen only as somebody, I mean, it's this weird thing where people won't take you seriously until you do that type of work. But if you only do that type of work, you start losing credibility in the long run because the assumption is you can't do anything else. Sort of like actors who get typecast, you know? So I would say that there's a value in working for like Transformers because it has a multi national fan base and they always whining and complaining about something but the fact that they your name is in that conversation even if they hate you because being hated is also a form of public relations you know i mean a former president is the best example of that right so with that being said you know 
it, it, it's good to do the licensed material, but you don't want that to be the bread and butter of your career long-term. Um, now, what it does do for you is that if you drop, let's say a Judge Dredd graphic novel or My Little Pony, you know, or G.I. Joe or something like that on somebody's desk and said, I wrote that. And that person happens to be a fan of that franchise, like an executive or, you know, a director or somebody with money, you know, is a fan of that franchise. They may take you a little bit more seriously because they say, oh, you can work in somebody else's world. You know, you can play in somebody else's sandbox and you did it well. That is a skill a lot of people don't have. And it's a necessary skill if you want to work in, you know, the so-called Hollywood entertainment industry, you know? So I think that, like I said, it's a double-edged sword. One side is sharper than the other, though, and it, on, on a good way, you know? The blunt side of the blade is getting, getting typecast. But the other side, you know, you make a little bit of money and you get your name out there and you can use that as a leverage tool for the rest of your career. And, and to follow up on that idea, uh, you know, obviously one of the things that... Um, has been a consistent part of your narrative is is the original work like working very hard to to tell your stories mm-hmm. and um over the last decade i think the sort of steady drum beat uh, related to uh, the marketplaces it's there's a there's mm-hmm. there is a lot of stuff from creators of color out there you have to find it right uh different mm-hmm. different different platforms have opened up in the last few years. Um, you know, we, we can argue about Kickstarter, GoFundMe, all, all these spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, as a person who's sort of been thinking about and been doing for this whole time, where are we in that conversation about um, original minority creators, men, women uh, of color, and their ability to, to get their stories out into the marketplace? Is it better now? Yeah. I mean, first of all, there's never been a lower bar of entry for anybody, whether you want to write novels or shoot short films or create your own graphic novel. It all depends upon several factors. Um, it's usually economics is what is what, you know, kind of is an obstacle for most people in the, pop, in, 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 the, in the visual arts, because you have to either have time enough to create it and be able to pay your bills. Or you have to figure out a way to finance, you know, things beyond just paying your bills, you know. Now, the the easiest thing to do in the world, so to speak, is write a novel, which is also one of the hardest things to do in the world, right? But if you, there's there's, there's an extremely low bar of entry because anybody can self-publish. Graphic novels become a little bit more complicated because it's a uh, collaborative art. You can write a novel by yourself. You cannot do a graphic novel by yourself unless you can write, draw, color, edit, and get it bound and distribute it. You know, and even with digital distribution, there's still a lot of money and work that goes into it, right? So I feel that you can create what you want now easier than it ever was before. Like if I wanted to find out how to write a screenplay, like in 1985, it was very difficult to find out what a screenplay looked like in 1985 unless you were in Los Angeles, right? Now I can download every script that's ever been written within like a couple of hours, literally, you know, that didn't exist before, you know, uh, there was, what was it? There was a transgender film, a film about transgender um, uh, characters in Hollywood. It came out a couple of years ago called Tangerine, right? That film was shot on an iPhone, the whole damn thing, the whole damn thing, you know, there's nothing stopping people other than a lack of ambition and a lack of know-how 
and really just determination. If you want to get something done, you'll get it done. You know, I mean, I remember Felicia Rashad, you know, I'm paraphrasing her when she, um, she, she was, she was on, I think, uh, Oprah one time where it was her and Viola Davis and I think Loretta, it was a bunch of black women actresses talking about the industry or whatever. Right. And something Felicia Rashad said has stuck with me for like all these years. And she said something like, you know, people came up to me and was ask, asking about how Spike Lee did it. And she, re- and I'm paraphrasing her horribly, but she said, but Spike Lee just did it. He didn't wait for permission. He went and did it. And everyone around, like we did it. So I feel that, and this is where I start to get, why I might sound a little bit like meaner. People just have to do stuff, finish what they start. As somebody who has done conventions for, I've been going to conventions for almost 30 years, but I've been speaking at conventions since 2010, right? At a bit like San Diego Comic-Con, WonderCon, New York Comic-Con, the whole nine, right? I meet a lot of people who are constantly aspiring, but they never do anything. And you have to get off your behind and go out and do it. Reading books, listening to lectures is all great, but go and do it. Do it, you know, shoot it. You know, quoting that horrible Scar Starsky and Hutch, go do it, do it, you know, the Ben Stiller line, do it, you know, like you got to go and do it, you know, or Palpatine, do it, you know, like go off and do it. And that's really what it is. Like there's the bar of entry to create is extremely low. The bar of entry in Hollywood is constantly shifting. But if you do enough on your own, you don't have to worry about Hollywood, you know, because they'll come looking for you. You know, and that's another trick is that knocking on the, knocking on anybody's door is always the wrong thing to do. Like when the people come and knock on your door, try to sell you something, you don't want it. But when you go to Amazon and buy it, you might buy the same thing those people were selling at the door. But because they knocked on your door, you do not buy it from them. You go to somebody you already trust and like and you buy it from them. And that's what goes on with Hollywood. Like they, they constantly need content. But if you come, if you ask to be a part of the scene, they don't want you. They only want to see what the cool kids are doing over there so they can buy it, just like the tech world does, you know? So that's how I look at that. Are, is there still structural, uh, systematic and structural racism, sexism within the, and classism in the industry? Absolutely. But that is not an excuse not to create. And I think that's what I, I'm, I'm really tired of hearing. Like, I'm really tired of dealing with aspiring creators all the time. It's like, I just feel that there is, there are things that keep you out, but I really truly believe what keeps a lot of people out is their own laziness. And you can take that any way you want to take it, you know? And that, that's been my observation from lived experience, you know? So, you know, as you um, are looking at some of this work that you're doing, especially related to DC, is there um, a place that you want to take your work in particular, be it uh, some of the franchise work or your individual um, writing, because you've, you've written on TV, you've done documentary, you're, you're doing, you know, all these things. So where do you, where do you see your work going? Um, okay, well, at DC, I'll just keep writing whatever they, you know, as I was assigned Mr. Miracle in the Future State as like a 10-page backup, as a series of four 10-page backup stories in the Superman books for Future State. They just happen to like what I did, <laughs> thank God, right? Um, I would like to keep doing stuff. I mean, Superman is my goal at DC. I mean, act, like either Superman book or action comics. I would like to have a run 
with Superman, like John Byrne or Mark Waid or like my like my my, my current colleague Philip Kennedy Johnson, who's doing amazing work with Superman. You know, I, th that's one of my goals. I mean, if I could jump into other parts of the DC universe if they allow me to, I'm not going to. If they want me to do Flash, I will do Flash. You know, they want me to do Swamp Thing, I will do Vixen. I will do Jimmy Olsen because it's the DC universe, right? With that being said, long term. I, I want to get back into TV. I mean, I'm, I'm, my plan is to be a showrunner. I have a big space opera concept in my head that I've had for like 20 years. I'm still not smart enough to do it. I'm getting smart enough to do it because I have to learn how you do this stuff that will people, will people actually give you money to produce it, for, you know? But my long-term goal is to be a showrunner, just like, just like J. Michael Straczynski did with Babylon 5 or Gene Roddenberry did or with Star Trek or George Lucas or the folks who created The Expanse, you know? or Tamino, who created Mobile Suit Gundam, like that would be, or Mamoru Oshii, who created Pat, who refined the Pat Labor series, this is all deep cuts in anime. You know, that's where I want to go. I mean, I'm very much into um, space opera and uh, big intergalactic adventures that are based on real world events. And I would like to create a TV series, live action, you know, in that vein. And that's my goal. That's my big career magnum opus goal. I don't know if that'll happen, but that's where I want to go with it long-term. Yeah, and I'm struck by the fact that as a, as a writer, as a creator, you're really drawn to speculative work, right? This sci-fi work. Mm -hmm. And we're in a moment where, for lack of a better term, a kind of Afrofuturist of Black speculative uh, entertainment is at the center of a lot of a conversation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, do you see the, the things that you're envisioning sort of fitting into that space? Mm -hmm. that, oh. hmm. Well, how do I put this? I feel like Afrofuturism in and of itself has been deeply misunderstood. Like I hear people use it. Like, like, it's like how people use racism when they actually mean anti-Blackness, right? I feel that Afrofuturism is an umbrella for so many different things. Because, for example, would Star Trek Discovery season, I guess it's season three, would that be Afrofuturist? Because the two main leads are Black and they save the universe together. But it's Star Trek. But is that Afrofuturist just because you have two Black leads? Or is there an element from the diaspora that's injected into the narrative that makes it uniquely about African people? Like, let's say, Black Panther or the, or the intergalactic empire of Wakanda, which is in the comic books, right? I mean, that's a tricky, that's a tricky one because it, my space opera concept, the main characters, most of them are people of color, but they're not exclusively so, right? So then does that count because I'm a black creator with black main characters in a space empire scenario? Is that Afrofuturist if it does not specifically talk about elements of the diaspora in that context, right? So I don't know where I fall in that category, because I haven't done anything like the, some of the work of like, uh, let's say, N.K. Jemison or Nettie Korafor or even John Jennings, you know, like I, I don't, my work doesn't look or feel like that. But I am a black creator of speculative fiction. So is that Afrofuturistic or is it just me doing a black guy doing speculative fiction? You know what I mean? And, and I don't know the answer to that because I feel like it's a constantly evolving and nebulous term, just like the word racism is. You know, I don't know what it actually 
is a textbook definition, but an application, it can mean so many different things. And it's often a misnomer, in my opinion. You know, so yeah, I mean, I, I support, I read, I like to think I'm creating an Afrofuturistic element, but I don't know if you can say Brandon Easton's work are specifically Afrofuturist. You know what I mean? So yeah, I'm still like up in the air about that in in and of itself. Well, that's a great answer. I think you know, um, part of your questioning about that is, is uh, I think, a perfectly normal thing. I, but I really appreciate that answer, and I don't sure. have any other questions. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I also wanted to thank you. These, this was uh, an incredible conversation, and as with. Uh, most things, especially with reading your work. I have like 8,000 more questions, but I won't keep you here any longer. Um, so I have so, time if you have one, <laughs> if anybody has one or two more, I'm, uh, I'm ready. We, we usually like to ask our, our guests um, what comics creators and comics things are really exciting to you right now, whether it's stuff that you're reading or you know folks that you think need a little bit more spotlight or just stuff that you have on the to read mm-hmm. shelf. Woo! Wow. Uh, well, oh my God, I'm trying to follow. Okay, so, well, there's a lot of folks who I deeply respect and admire, right? Like Jeffrey Thorne was a major mentor. He's now writing Green Lantern. Uh, Brandon Thomas, me and Brandon Thomas do a podcast together called The Two Brandons. Um, these are folks who I, you know, uh, there's a guy like Hannibal Taboo, Robert Roach, there's um, Jamal Igle, there's David Walker. There's, um, I'm trying not to leave out anybody, Ray Anthony Height. There's um, a guy named, uh, oh God, what's his, I'm, I'm blanking out. I'm so sorry, guys. Uh, he, he does a book called Insana, the Were Spider, uh, Gregory Elise, you know, um, there's Jason Reeves and 133, 133 Art. There's, there's a lot of folks out there who are uh, creators of color, who I've known for years, who are doing great things. Um, books, you know, like, all the new, like the, the High Republic stuff, the new Star Wars stuff uh, that's disconnected from all the Skywalker stuff. That's, I've just gotten into that. Um, that's been really fantastic. There's a new comic book that just came out called Radiant Black, which has nothing to do with race. Um, that's about a superhero that uses the power of a mini, mini singularity or a black hole, which is really awesome. I love stuff like that, like, you know, like crazy stuff, you know. Um, God, it's so, I'm, 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 blank, I'm blanking out, but I just think that, you know, if you just go online and look up, like, you know, go to Twitter, look up Black comic book writers or Black comic book artists, right now, because it's Black History Month, you know, this, this stuff is showing up in hashtags. Oh, Kevin Grievous, you know, the brother who created, co-created the Underworld franchise and all this other stuff. On his Facebook page, he's highlighting every Black creator he knows that has not gotten a lot of shine. And the list is long at this point. So if you go to Kevin Grievous's uh, Facebook page, I co-sign all the folks that he has spotlighted with pictures, with like a mini, you know, resume and with pictures of not only their faces, but pictures of the stuff they worked on or created. Um, oh, Tony Purier and Al- Erica Alexander, who did Concrete Park, friends of mine, a lot more. They need a lot more. Sh- I mean, Erica was on Living Single, but she also is a creator in her own right of science fiction material, right? Lots of folks. So I, I feel like there's no shortage of particularly black creators of speculative fiction in comics and in prose. 
that population is huger than it ever has been in the history of mankind, literally, right? So it's just a matter of what is it you want? What's your flavor? Do you want more, you know, YA related material? Do you want darker stuff? Do you want more erotic stuff? It's all out there. You just got to do a little bit of research, you know? And yeah, that's what I would say, you know? And um, yeah, there's, there's so much more. I just can't think of it off the top of my head. <laughs> No, no, that's plenty. I, I was actually just, you know, I was looking at, um, I think I saw Stacey Robinson sharing all those posts. I was like, oh, I got to get this. I got to get this. Um, lastly, uh, we, we talked about a few things, but what projects do you have coming up? Uh, we want to spotlight your work. So what, what can we kind of keep an eye out for? Okay. Well, Superman Truth, it's called Truth and Justice Superman issues four through six have just been released digitally. That's the mass incarceration story those will be eventually collected into a print version. I don't know when that's coming out, but it is coming out sometime in the next couple of months. Superman Red and Blue, that's the story with the heroin addiction in it. That's coming out also within a month or so. Mr. Miracle, the Source of Freedom, issue one, comes out May 4th, uh, 2021. That's the Mr. Miracle miniseries, six issues. And it's a kind of reboot of Shiloh Norman as Mr. Miracle. And not going to get too much into it. I almost spoiled something. I had to shut my mouth. Um, Batman, Legends of the Dark Knight. I have a story which is Batman versus Azrael versus Rachel Ghul. You know, that's, which is insane. You know, I can't really let me do that. You know, that'll be coming out um, over the summer months digitally. Digitally. I'm working with Blizzard Entertainment right now. Can't say with what, but I am working with Blizzard Entertainment for like, I have a one year contract with them halfway through that. So it's been, um, that's some, and oh, Star Trek year five, issues 20 and 21 which deal with Spock traveling back in time to the day of the schism between the Vulcans and what would become the Romulans. So that's pretty crazy um, if you're a Star Trek fan. Um, and what else is coming out? And yeah, I think that's it. And like my Judge Dredd miniseries, which I was the first African-American writer of Judge Dredd in history. Uh, False Witness just came out this past Wednesday, issue four, it was a four issue series. So that's gonna be collected as well. Uh, my Transformers Galaxies work, which included Ultra Magnus uh, storyline, that's going to be collected within the next couple of months. So there's a lot coming out. Oh, and the Vampire Hunter D Message from Mars collection is also going to be coming out within the next few months. I mean, I'm getting the information as you get the information because I'm not within the company anymore, but um, that'll be coming out soon too. So there's no shortage of material. And I'm also on Instagram. Uh, you can find me at Brandon Easton Writer, spelled like it sounds. I'm on Twitter at Brandon Easton. I'm also on Facebook. So I always encourage folks to reach out. And I, I also have a podcast called Writing for Rookies, which I've been doing since 2005 or 2004. And it's all about specifically uh, how to break into science fiction and how to break into comics. It's, it's specifically about that. And of course, I've spread out a bit, but the earlier episodes, the first like 12 or 13 are specifically about those industries. So yeah, that's how you can find me. That is so much. I that there's so many good things coming out just from, oh my God, I'm so excited. Uh, thank you so much for, for sitting down and talk with us today. Um, thank you for having me. I think we're going to have to ha try and have you back on when your uh, when your NDA with Blizzard is up, because I need to know, but uh, thank you for joining us and, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Thank you.